do trust that your Holy Spirit will give us eyes to see what we need to see. Lord, that you would open us to the word that you lay before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, specifically chapter 9. It is a familiar passage. It's a familiar passage that we find at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, or let's look at verses 1 through 7. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? I got to take. It's warm up here. So I got to take a poll this morning if I get this working. Kind of curious to know when you guys were little, how many of you were afraid of the dark? Anyone? Oh wow, a lot of people. Some people are not raising your hand either. You're just not listening or you're not honest. <laughs> um, or you're just a rare soul. That could be too. Uh, I think I've shared a story like this before, but I was afraid of the dark. I guess more precisely, we're not afraid of the dark, we're afraid of what might be in the dark lurking. You know, as, as a kid, I do recall many nights laying awake in my bed with the covers pulled up over my face because I was afraid of what might be lurking under the bed or in the room somewhere where I couldn't see, hiding in the closet. Uh, and I do remember getting so bad, particularly in the summertime because it was hot. I lay under those covers trying not to sweat and trying not to breathe heavy in case they, in case they heard me and came out. Uh, I probably exacerbated all this by, I think I've told you this story too, uh, the way I used to torment my poor sister. And uh, uh, I'd wait until she was in bed and I would have hidden under her bed before she went in there and wait till it was in the dark. So she knew there really were things lurking in the dark. Because as mom and dad would go out and they would tuck her in bed and I would lay there, I'd reach up and I'd just grab her. And <laughs> she still is in counseling to this day. No, not really. She's forgiven me. Uh, there, are, there are 
there are dangers in the dark. And the, the funny thing is, if I took another poll to say, how many of you are still afraid of the dark? I probably wouldn't see very many hands. And I, I don't know what it is. It's, though, there's, it's not as though there, there aren't still dangers in the dark, perhaps not the dangers that we imagined as kids, but there are still dangers in the dark. And yet, somehow as we grow up, we just get used to the dark. We get comfortable in the dark. And I, I, I bring that up because this, this text talks about light and darkness. It's, you know, that's a, uh, the Bible is rich in imagery with light and dark. And I, I know we like to talk a lot about the light, and we don't really talk that much about the dark. And there is some sense in which we think about Christmas, we think about the light, and we should think about the light. We sing songs of joy. We, 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 we talk about good tidings. We... we we think of all the little Christmas special with the animated characters running around. We think of family coming back and, and laughing together and opening presents together. And it's, it's a time that we think is meant to lighten the heart, to fill us with joy. But there is another sense in which Christmas is reminding us, at least the story of Christmas is reminding us, that there is a very real darkness. Unless we understand that the darkness is real, then we really won't understand that the light is powerful. Because that's what the story of Christmas is. The story of Christmas is the story of God penetrating the darkness. Penetrating the darkness. And that's what we see here laid out in this familiar passage, especially in verse 2. And I want to go through this passage and, and try to understand where do we see the power of Christmas? We see the power of Christmas because it penetrates the dark. So we have to understand something about the nature of the dark in order to appreciate and understand the significance of the power of the light. So first of all, I want to talk about the darkness. I don't know how many sermons you've heard where they talk about Christmas and, and just talk about the darkness, but we're going to do it. Uh, the darkness is a word that we find a couple of times in this particular passage, specifically in verse 2. We find it repeated. Uh, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, initially this is poetry and it seems like it's parallelism, and there probably is some measure of parallelism here intended, but the, the words that are used here for darkness are two different Hebrew words. They're not the same word, uh, the first one and the second one, and I think they're referring to two different kinds of darkness. The first one it's from a verb, but it's in participial form, and participles are meant to describe, uh, to describe in a descriptive sense. And this one is, is talking about an ongoing action that's going on. So when we put it in those terms, the people who walked in darkness, the, the more literal translation would be the people walking in darkness. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. The people who walking in darkness. There's this, there's this notion initially, that this darkness is something that characterizes the way in which the people are walking. Now, who, who is this prophecy written to? This is written, of course, to the people of Israel. Uh, the people of Israel in the days of Isaiah. In the days of Isaiah, he was a prophet that lived in a time when the kingdom of Israel had been split in two, it had been split into the northern side, of, which was the ten tribes characterized by the word Israel, and then the southern tribe, or the southern tribes, which are predominantly named uh, by the tribe Judah. Isaiah's 
is ministering mostly in Judah, but he's talking largely about events that are happening in the north. And in the north, at the time of Isaiah, the nation of Assyria was a threat. And there's a reason that was a threat. And he's explaining that things are happening in your world that you need to take seriously. And it's not as though this is just, an, it's, it's just a threat that's off to your, I'm trying to think, your east. There's a reason that threat exists, as we understand from the prophet Isaiah's words that, that God is a sovereign God and God is doing something specific. And it's all related to the fact that the people have been described as walking in darkness. Now, Isaiah, if you go back and read the chapter that gives some, the, the previous chapter, it gives a little bit of context to understand this. So, if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, turn a little bit, uh, a page back to chapter 8 and look beginning at verse 19. He says this, uh, and when they say to you, you Isaiah, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So he's describing the way in which the people of Israel that he is preaching to or talking to or writing to are living. They're walking according to what he's calling a darkness. And how he describes that here is they're inquiring of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. He says that's where they're going to for guidance. That's who they're looking to to aid them and help them along the way when they're finding themselves needing something in their life. And he's describing that as a walking in darkness. You're walking according to a light that really can't shine and expose the dangers that lurk before you, and yet that's what you're doing. Now, if we think about how to apply this in our day and age, where do we find answers? Where do we find answers for life? I mean, it's not a, a small business today to go to the same kinds of things, to go to fortune tellers. You can drive through Houston and find fortune tellers on many corners, promising to be able to divine for you something about your future that can give you some direction. And it's a tempting thing for a lot of people because they're looking for answers. They're looking for direction in life. And here's someone who's promising to be able to give it to you on demand, in the immediacy, no waiting involved. But it's not just those things. We don't have to look to the the fortune tellers and the other things, it's, it's big business in other ways. In general, verse 22 of that chapter characterizes like this, and they will look to the earth. The point is that the people are looking to things that we would find limited to this world for hope and answers. They're looking to, to the patterns and the forces of this world to somehow uncover the dangers that exist in the darkness for them to give them guidance regarding the major questions and problems in our society. So we turn to self-help books, psychiatrists, therapists. We turn to politicians, economists, and educators. And we could ask, is the world a better place because of it? You might answer, well, perhaps, to some degree. 
An economist can tweak this or that and impact consumer confidence. That's certainly true. But the bigger problem of hunger is not solved. An educator can train a student how to succeed in business, but the bigger problem of contentment is not solved. A psychiatrist can help a person work through an emotional crisis, but the bigger problem that caused the emotional issue in the first place is not solved. A politician can enact laws to improve public safety, but can't solve the bigger problem of injustice. Self-help books may help a person improve their skills in a particular area, but they will never answer the bigger question of who am I and why am I here? You see, the world offers no real lasting answers. It can provide some, some band-aid upon a moment. It can, it can provide help to some of the symptoms that we experience of walking in the dark, but it can't get us out of the dark. And that's the problem that we find. We are a people that are clamoring for meaning and purpose, clamoring to understand our significance in the vastness of this creation. And as long as we are looking within the confines of this creation, we won't find an answer to that question of why are we here? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? This is the state of the people in the book of Isaiah. He describes at the end of chapter 8 like this, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, implying that's really all there is to be found when you limit your looking to this earth. So, as a result of that, as a result of that, we keep reading in chapter 8, he says, they will be thrust into thick darkness. So, we go from the darkness, the first darkness, The darkness is describing the way in which the people walked, which is also characteristic of those in this world. We walk in the darkness. We look for answers within the confines of what we find on this earth, and yet we still remain in the dark. But we don't always know it, and we don't always feel it. Just as I said, we've grown accustomed to walking in the dark. We don't experience enough of the symptoms of the dangers to really be that concerned about it. And that was true in the day of Isaiah as well. They had their comforts in their life that kept them from really being concerned from the fact that we're walking in darkness. So the answer to that, what God is going to do as a result, as He says, is to thrust them into thick darkness. This is another kind of darkness. Now, what kind of darkness is He talking about here? Well, often you'll, t- you'll find that when you read the Old Testament prophets, we, we think of them as telling us what's happening in the future, but largely what the prophets did was they were students of the work that had come to Moses, the, the writings of Moses in the law of God, because the law of God describes how the people of God, the people of Israel, are supposed to live. And Moses wrote about, if you live and keep the commands that I've given you, you will be blessed, and you will do well and prosper in the land. But if you don't keep the law that I am giving you this day, then you will be cursed, and I will cause very specific things to happen to you. And so the prophets are often observing what's going on in the nation of Israel. Are they walking according to the laws of God, the light that He's given, or are they walking in the ways of the world? And He's, he's seeing that they are walking in the ways of the world, so He's telling them about what's going to happen, which is right there, all the way back in the writings of Moses. And I want to, if you, if you want to turn there, turn to the book of Deuteronomy, 
chapter 28, beginning in 46, because he describes exactly what's happening here. He's, this is the curses for disobedience, shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. See, it was easy for you not to be involved because you had things to enjoy. You weren't feeling the pain of the darkness. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also, it also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish." They shall, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And jumping down a few verses in verse 64, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see." This is what Moses said. And Isaiah is taking this and he's saying, look, this is what the Lord is about to do to you as a people because you have been walking in darkness and you haven't known it. You haven't felt it. So now I'm going to let you feel it. He was stirring up, of course, what we're talking about is the nation of Assyria the nation of Assyria to the east it was growing as an empire, it was growing in power, it was wiping out nations around them. They'd already settled a lot of the disputes. We've been, been teaching a, a, a world history class, an ancient history class for high school students this semester, and we've just been reading about the nature of the uh, army of Assyria. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but we learn from other historians that, that the nation of Assyria was, they were, they were not kind to those they defeated. Uh, those generals or those, uh, when, they, when they subdued the nation to their south, which was Babylon, and the chiefs that had risen up against them there, they skinned them alive, they hung their skins on walls. They would take some of them and impale them and put them on posts. Others, they would chop off all their body parts and scatter them about. They would take their heads and they would string them to vines that looked like a garden. They would pile them alive, one on top of another, to make a giant pillar and pour plaster over them to secure a pillar. This was not a nice people. And yet, this is the people that God Himself has raised up to be the agent that will come and threaten the people of Israel. In fact, the northern kingdom, they did carry them away into exile. Why? So that the people would find their own souls in anguish. 
In other words, they would feel the darkness of the way in which they had walked. Their comforts would be stripped away. Now, we can think about that as how awful, that's a terrible thing. God is so cruel to do all this. But is God being cruel in doing this? What's the point of all this? The point of all this is so that they will know that they're actually walking in the dark. You know, it is true, if, if you talk to people about the story of how they came to know the Lord, you will probably hear a story that talks about some time in their life when they felt a sense of the anguish of their soul. They felt that they were walking in the dark. When we listen in Presbytery to guys coming before us to be ordained and they have to give us their story, their, their, their call, how they became a believer in Christ, and often their story is a very familiar story. They get to some point in their life, while they may have grown up hearing about all this good stuff, hearing about Jesus Christ and hearing about how He, he died on their behalf to save them from their sins, that God is a forgiving God. Even though they might grow up hearing that, there is, there's this point in their time when they finally started to feel that they had an actual need for that. For until you feel the emptiness of your soul and the anguish of your soul, you really won't be looking for answers. You can hear, have the answer available to you all along, but unless you have a sense that you need it, it does you no good. So there is grace in the sense that God is carrying them off into captivity and stripping them away from all the blessings that were associated with living in a land in which God had blessed. They're walking in the darkness, but they didn't know it. Now God is going to let them feel it. He's going to let them feel it. So as we go back to that verse 2, this was the other part of that darkness. The people who walked in darkness, who were walking in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The land of deep, dark, deep darkness is the place in which they have got, been sent to feel the consequences of the way they've been walking all along. It's like, I'm going to remove from you all the things that you've been able to cover up the symptoms of this bad walking so that you are left feeling death at your door death at your door. And of course, this is the story of Christmas. This is the story of Christmas. It's a story in which a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, when you understand something about the darkness, the light suddenly has power to penetrate and to push out the darkness. And I want to read to you, this is the story of that light. And I want to read to you the nature of how that light works. First of all, the light, the way it's described is the people walking in, in darkness have, have seen a great light. It has come upon them. The light has penetrated to the place in which they are. And that's important to understand. It's not as though they went searching for the light, for there was no light whatsoever in the place where God had sent them. They're living in a land where they're having to go after gods of wood and stone, as Isaiah says. This is the land in which God, His presence, has not been made known on the earth. They've been sent away from that. They're in a place, in other words, that has no light that they can find anywhere on their own. It takes God coming to penetrate the darkness where they are. Light has shined upon them. 
The subject in that sentence is the light. The object of the sentence is the people. This is the way the gospel works. The gospel is the subject. It's the mover. It's the actor. And the people are the object. They're the ones impacted. They're the ones affected. They're the ones that have been penetrated. And that light is about to shine to a people who are feeling the weight of their darkness. But I want you to notice something else as well as he goes on in this passage to describe it. The light isn't simply a better understanding of life. I think we tend to think of it like that. Light is, oh, suddenly now I can see things. I can see the way things really are. But that's not what he's saying. As he goes on, you find out that this light is not just theology. It's not just teaching. It's not more law. The light is actually a person. If you look in verse 6, this is the answer. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, the light that will shine is not a word of wisdom that shines, that that shows us the right way to walk in order to earn the favor of God. It is not a philosophy that will lead us to joy and meaning. It is a person. It is a person. And I think there's more here. If you you go back earlier and look at verse 2 again, Remember, it's a Hebrew participle. The proper, the technical interpretation is this this continuing action, people walking in darkness, but that's not the way the translators have translated it. It says the people who walked in darkness. It's though they've put a past tense on it, even though it is a present tense participle. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think the translators understood what was happening here. The impact of the fact that this person has come as the light has changed the way they've walked. So that the the walking in the current, in the present, and the ongoing sense of darkness is now in the past tense. And they're not walking in that way anymore. Something has changed. You know, the Gospel of John, he he, he picks up on this, this imagery of light and dark. It's exactly what Jesus had come to do. In a verse, uh, in John chapter 1, Uh, verse 4, he writes this. He's talking about Christ. He says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul writes about this too in chapter, in in his letter to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. There is a sense in which the coming of this person who is the light has such an impact on the person who knows he's walking in the darkness that his life is forever changed. It is no longer characterized by walking by the way of the darkness. Now he is the embodiment of light. Now how is it that Christ Himself can do that? Well, He has essentially taken away the darkness out of the heart of the people that He has shined upon. For once that light penetrates into the heart of a person, that darkness is penetrated, that darkness goes away. What was that darkness? What was that shadow of death, as it were? What was the thing that caused them to be facing 
the death itself, and that is their own, their own wayward ways, the guilt of walking in the darkness. Christ has penetrated that. When He came on this earth, He came to live the life that we were meant to live, that we were called to live, that Moses directed that we should live on our behalf. So that when He hung upon that cross, He had no sin, no guilt of His own to be crucified for. And yet, it was God's will to put Him there as a substitute for you and I. So that our guilt, our darkness, would be placed upon Christ and crucified. It would be carried away, as Isaiah says, as far as the east is from the west. It would be thrown into the sea. It would be forgotten forever. It would be washed away. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He ushers you in back to the land of promise where God's presence is because you have been washed clean. Your darkness has been penetrated, and you are now a believer. You are now a follower. You are now a beneficiary of the work of God. So, how does, how does the gospel work? Well, the gospel has power for those who are aware of the dark, who are aware that they are in a problem. They're, they are walking in the shadow of death. Have you gotten to that place in your life? Is your participation with the church something that you just do because it's what you've done or because you know that the darkness that you once walked in has been utterly penetrated and now you see things that you couldn't see? Now you are moved to worship in a way that you've never been moved to worship before. This is the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is the light that penetrates the dark. And it doesn't mean anything for those of you who are unaware that you're walking in the dark. But if you know what it's like to walk in the dark, then you understand the power of Christmas. You understand the joy of God sending His Son into the world to penetrate the darkness of your own heart. So I want to encourage you this morning as we go to a time of prayer, that if you've never really understood the power of darkness in your life, but perhaps this morning God has opened your eyes to see it, that you would simply take a moment to put your trust in Him and embrace Him as your King and as your God and as your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that Christmas is a story about light that penetrates the darkness so powerfully that the darkness cannot stand before it, that it is penetrated, that it flees, that it is gone, that it is removed, that it is washed away, that it has no longer power over our souls. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have not yet been made aware of the darkness that gets washed away, Lord, that You would help them to feel a sense of it, only so that they would be drawn to putting their trust in You. This is our hope, Lord, the work of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. It's His name we pray. Amen.